You're tuning in to an Oats for Breakfast Patreon exclusive discussion. In this segment, we're going to continue chatting with Benjamin Bilgen. Going to have a bit of a broader discussion this time, and we'll try and compare our experiences riding the transit system in Toronto with transit systems elsewhere. And maybe we'll get into talking about transport infrastructure more generally. So this discussion will branch out more broadly, but it'll also be rooted in our personal experiences and recollections. Welcome back to the podcast, Benjamin. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask, like, I put on a real, like, Turkish accent while, <laughs> while saying your name there. That was good. It was, I liked was it. Was it okay? Yeah, that was accurate. How was yeah. my accent, yeah? Excellent, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, <laughs> for our Turkish listeners, biraz Türkçe biliyorum. Oh, çok güzel söyledi, değil mi? I said, oh, he said it really good, didn't he? <laughs> Oh, there you go. Okay, so maybe we can start with Turkey, actually, because you just came back from Turkey. Yeah. Um, what are your sort of personal recollections of the transit system? I, I guess not in all of Turkey, but you were yeah. in the southwest, I guess, in Antalya. Yeah, I was in Antalya. So um, I I actually lived in Antalya before I came to Toronto. Mm-hmm. So I was used to the public transit system there. I took the bus a lot and stuff like that. Um, but after going back, since I've been living in Toronto, I realized that it's actually a pretty, pretty weak system, especially like the bus service. Uh, for example, like in Toronto, they'll have buses, like the night schedule buses, they'll come maybe once every half hour on some routes, maybe once every hour. And it, it's really not that hard to catch the night bus. You know, you might have to wait, along, wait around a little bit. But uh, in Antalya, pretty much after 11.30, the next bus won't come to like 2, 2.30. And especially in a city where there's a lot of tourists and the main industry is like, you know, going out to bars, restaurants and stuff like that. It's really difficult for people who maybe are on a limited budget to go out and have fun, you know, go go to the bar. And then maybe if you want to go home at like 12 or 1 a.m., you end up having to wait outside for like an hour or two. So... I, I thought that was kind of challenging and kind of, I'd never really noticed how difficult it was until I saw how much more service there is in Toronto. But then again, Toronto is like a much bigger city, so. Well, and I mean, as you've pointed out, like it in, in a city like Antalya, where actually staying out late at night, because I stayed there for a few months, a couple years ago, um, it's a, it's a regular thing to do. You go out and you sit around, late into the night yeah. smoking cigarettes and uh, you know drinking, drinking bad beer and bad beer yeah. <laughs> yeah and uh and so you know this is a regular occurrence and so in this context you'd think that like night owl buses would be right uh you know all the more regular but in but as you're saying they yeah. aren't so i mean i guess this has something to do perhaps with the increasing islamicization of right turkish politics and the push to discourage people from engaging in, you know, un-Islamic activities like, uh, yeah. you know, consuming alcohol and staying out late at night. It's, yeah, it's, thing. it's basically like coddling the population and being like sort of erecting sis- systemic barriers to basically do what they normally would do. Mm-hmm. Like um, you, you probably notice like alcohol sales are banned after 10 o'clock at night. Mm. Um, and I think also, like you mentioned, like the the limited bus service past 11 or like 11.30 p.m. is part of that sort of inadvertently encouraging people to like stay at home, 
do live a more righteous lifestyle, more moderate, regulated, conservative, you know, kind of in line with the AKP's politics. And I'm not really sure if that has been the case all the time in Antalya or more um, more recently, like for the past few years, it might be like five years or so, um, there's been an AKP governor of Antalya, or I'm not sure if it's called a governor, but... but Just for our listeners, the AKP is the Justice and Development Party. Yeah. Uh, and it's the, yeah, it's the most powerful political force in Turkey at the moment and has been, I guess, for the last two decades. Yeah, and they sort of... Uh, garnered political support by putting on this like a uh, very righteous you know conservative muslim show mm-hmm. for the population like oh look we don't drink we discourage smoking and all these things and that really appeals to the conservative sector of turkish society well one of the things i noticed in antalya was that uh when you use their uh fair card system um and you tap in one of the terminals it shows you how much what the balance is on your card um and i thought that was really nice and or at least nice enough to tell you when you're about to run out so you can uh reload it but here in toronto with the pesto card you don't have that so if you are only you know increasingly we don't carry on crash or other means of paying um and you just have a presto card you don't know when it's about to run out um and you can only refill it either at subway stations or at shoppers drug mart locations or online but if you do it online it doesn't show up until after 24 hours and sometimes it doesn't show up at all um and so it's just if you have a presto card and it's empty you didn't realize it's empty you try to tap it and sometimes the drivers will give you a hard time and then they're like oh come up with other ways of paying it yeah For people who aren't from Toronto, from our, for our listeners who who don't know, uh, the city sent, spent, or the transit system spent tens of millions of dollars on this effort to install new gates uh, and a new system of cards that can be used to pay the fare. Uh, this was supposed to make the you know uh, fare payment far more efficient and everything was supposed to be far more streamlined. Anyway, so we've had this new card system come into place, but it doesn't have a basic feature. Like when you tap the card, it doesn't tell you how much more money you have on the card. There's also a lot of, um, I feel like they didn't plan the transition between Presto and like with the transfers and stuff like that. Because even like coming over here just a while ago, um, I took the Jane bus up and then I we uh, passed by Pioneer Village. And so I heard that the the next stop was Pioneer Village. So I pulled the cord, you know, got off there. And I, I paid with cash. So I had a, you know, a paper slip transfer in my hand. And then I got to the Pioneer Village station. And there was there was no way to enter unless you had Presto. Hmm. So at that point, like I have a, I have a you know, a fare slip. But there's no way of getting, uh, for me to get into the subway station. Hmm. And so I ended up having to hop over the, presto gates mm-hmm. even though i'd paid my fare so i could end up like on an ad campaign now <laughs> <laughs> so i mean in in pakistan when i was there in uh in lahore and Islamabad, they built what is that called like a designated bus street mm-hmm. but it was like raised above all other traffic Whoa. yeah it was like super efficient yeah and the buses were so nice and the fare for that was super cheap it was like 20 rupees which like even very poor people can afford which is like 20 cents maybe probably less now yeah Hmm. 
So what accounts for like, there seems to be more investment in public transit in Pakistan. Like, why why might that be the case? But I, from what I've heard, I don't follow the politics there closely, unfortunately. But I think it was like leading up to some election. And so mm. uh, the party that was trying to maintain its power was just did these like really mega transit projects in the three major cities in Pakistan and over a very short amount of time hmm. um, to sort of show that you know they're for the ordinary person. Sounds like they did a good job. Yeah, they are. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, yeah, so it, in that sense, like transit then can play into this kind of infrastructure populism, you know, which is a routine thing in in third world politics, but not only in third world politics. Uh, it's a thing here in Toronto with yeah. the Scarborough subway, for instance. Um, Saudi's example of transit in Pakistan, I think the other element that plays into this is, you know, the taking of large loans that are required for funding these transit infrastructure projects. Hmm. And when when large loans are, are acquired, then, you know, everyone can have their own take a little bit of the piece off on top like this this is a regular sort of again functioning of third world regimes historically you would see this in projects like giant projects like dam building for instance right mm-hmm. you would have to build this giant dam to electrify the country or part of the country and you would need a huge loan from the world bank and well you know what happens when it's when you get a big loan you you overestimate how much money is going to be spent or or you hire a western consulting firm to tell you how much you need to spend on the dam mm-hmm. how much you actually need how much electrification you actually need they overestimate the you know the project is far bigger than it needs to be the loan is far bigger than it needs to be and you know the politicians can take their their cut really so yeah mm. so that's that's part i think of of how transit infrastructure then is actually sometimes very rapidly built in third world cities where you wouldn't necessarily expect it Hmm. so how do you think they're going to pay back the loan it doesn't sound like they're gonna like recapture it from fares you know because it sounds like it's super cheap yeah i have no idea i wonder well i mean eventually the poor have to pay right like there are other means like in in pakistan for instance uh, one of the main ways the government recovers revenue is through value-added taxes so like which are very regressive taxes it means like every time you buy a bar of soap you know like 20 percent of the cost will be the tax that goes on top Mm. oh Uh, yeah the phone cards when you buy yeah everything everything as you go phones easily a quarter of that will go to taxes wow yeah so like revenue sort of generation tax recovery rates are you know through income taxes and these kinds of things are are relatively speaking lower in the third world because they don't have the the systems in place for the government to just take people's money if from as part of their income so you know an income tax can be progressive because you can take more money from from people who have higher incomes. Well, when you when you have a harder time taxing income, you end up instituting value-added taxes, like consumption taxes, right? Which, you know, are, uh, relatively speaking, affect the poor much more. So yeah, that's yeah, that's how some of that works. And eventually, yeah, the poor will pay for it. The rich will get to keep their, their nice cuts and it'll mm. be good. <laughs> but, but then, you know, I mean, it, but actually it, it is an important service. So like poor people do ride 
that transit. And like certainly in Lahore, where there's a, like the major recent transit infrastructure that came into place, I think the vast majority of people who ride that bus are poor. And, and in fact, upper middle class people and certainly the ultra rich would never be seen, you know, anywhere close to those buses. Hmm. Well, before that bus came about the existing, the pre-existing sort of public transit network in a city like Lahore, there are buses that they're sort of standard public buses. And then there are much smaller sort of like minivan kind of buses. But when my friend and I were there as both young women, we didn't feel comfortable riding any of those pre-existing ones. But when this new bus came, like it was like the route was very straightforward. It doesn't go very far, but it just like travels like one like north-south route. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like, everything about it was just a lot more welcoming. And so on the bus, we noticed that there were people, women, because there's a gender segregated section that, you know, the women are in the front of the bus, the men are in the back. Hmm. Um, there were some very poor like, you know, women who looked like they were from, you know, the servant class and the maid class. But there were also sort of students, like, you know, college students who seemed like they were from, you know, middle income families. And so the just the diversity within that bus class-wise was quite interesting and I wouldn't have thought it. And I guess in a city like Toronto, like we sort of take for granted and especially during rush hour, you would see like, well, I guess in Toronto, you see it's segregated by route um, in some ways and um, like certain routes in the city are overwhelmingly taken by like working class and racialized people. And others are like, you know, much more professional class and white. Um, but, but yeah, here the bankers ride transit too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What is it like Queens Park and... The financial stations? district. St. Patrick. Yeah. yeah, it's all bankers and stuff. Yeah. And I guess like, you know, so many people downtown, they'll be like, oh yeah, I don't even... I never need to take a bus. Like they just like hop on and off in the subways because the density of the subways is so much downtown that you know you just it's very walkable and the, all the subways are there and there is a the underground path system that connects you know different parts of downtown hmm. um and so for the people the very high income people living downtown yeah it's it's great oh, yeah. as a system that is interesting too like about toronto i don't really have the stats to back it up but it seems like like that downtown core maybe it's because of higher density but it does seem to have like more reliable service and you won't wait longer than maybe three to five minutes, you know, for any subway. But when you get past like Eglinton Station or Eglinton West, you know, you have these strange stretches of the of the path where the subway is just like stopped mm -hmm. and you'll you'll just be waiting there for like 10 minutes. So it, it does seem like the TTC even prioritizes richer neighborhoods, you know, the business district for more reliable service. Probably because those people are more politically valuable, you know, to the politicians and, you know, the TTC that are close to the politicians. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, one of the things that I noticed about the the new bus in... So, uh, Islamabad, which is the capital city of uh, Pakistan, it has a twin city uh, called Rawalpindi. And Islamabad is sort of like, it's not a real city. It's a kind of like a fake diplomatic city that was created just for diplomats. And so it's only the very rich who actually live there. And then there's, you know, the diplomatic enclave that's there. Well, they're the slums as well. Well, they are the slums. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, they have to be the slums if they're 
the wealthy people. There's mm-hmm. actually even a slum inside the diplomatic enclave, which is a wow. very heavily guarded sort of uh, place. So, I don't know, it's a, it's But a, just to be clarify for our listeners, yeah, the slums are there because the you know the servant class the maids and the workers and whatever else they have to live close to where they work they work in the you know diplomatic enclave or they work as servants in people's homes in their mansions well they they have their little slum or the, right right the next, squatter settlement yeah the squatter it. settlement yeah um and part, partly they have to live so close because the transit system is so bad yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, prior to these buses, these new buses connecting Rawalpindi and Islamabad, and Rawalpindi is like an, it's a much older city. It's a lot more like, you know, poor people who are living there. Um, but prior to this bus, there was really no consistent public transit route to get between the two twin cities. And so, and the most common sorts of like uh, public transit were banned from coming into Islamabad as a way of like keeping that from, you know, the riffraff coming uh, in. Yeah, and the common forms of trans- transport are? Like the rickshaw or um, the chinchi. Um, so they're like both sort of based on a motorcycle being hooked on to like a, a seating plane. Yeah, um, may- maybe our listeners would know like a tuk-tuk. No, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, that's what they're called, tuk-tuks. Yeah. I mean, I think rickshaws are fairly common, you know. Yeah, I've heard of rickshaws. Yeah. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but so, you know, and partly those were banned because like they're uh, very heavily polluting and they wanted to like keep the capital city, you know, nice and green. Mm-hmm. But um, but in effect, what that did was that, you know, people who were working in Islamabad, like either they're largely coming in by uh, by car if they're wealthy enough, um, or they're in the squatter settlement, so they're just like living, squatting on the uh, capital city land, or they're coming in through other means of like um, like you know little minivans that you know shove people in together. But it was just uh, it was such a striking thing that you can't actually access the city, like of the capital city without actually having a car. And mm. so to then build in uh, this new transit project that then connects these cities was a really big deal. And I guess that's just sort of, for me, um, it's significant because of like what transit does in terms of reproducing segregation of various kinds. Like where there mm-hmm. is good transit, there's going to be different kinds of people who are come in and out and, and go. And where there isn't, then it's, only, it's going to be limited to people who are going to be able to drive their private automobiles to a place. An example, clo- alternative example closer to home is Montreal, where it's such a stark contrast to Toronto, um, both in like how far the system reaches, uh, the subway system. And, well, I guess also, you know, in, in their labeling of it like uh, i think their slogan for it is collective movement i wonder like if you compare your experiences with public transit in different cities that you've been to um how much do you see of the like different social and economic classes mixing and what would you say is kind of like like to what extent does that happen in toronto because i guess like you were saying like certain routes obviously are you know, there's a very specific demographic that uses that route. But mm-hmm. if I compare um, riding public transit in Toronto as opposed to Turkey, I think you see a lot more of the classes mixing, like on, on Toronto Transit, you mm-hmm. know, 
it's like some of the only times the bankers might encounter like a homeless person or something like that or like be directly in their space mm-hmm. for a, a long period of time well they have to step over them on the street as well <laughs> that's true yeah. in front of their banks yeah. yeah but yeah and i wonder what what the impact is on maybe class consciousness or if that if that interaction is positive or negative in terms of moving in a direction that we want to mm. you know well yeah i mean i do think that that it's good that, to have a transit system that is a good quality enough system where even people who are ultra wealthy would like to ride on it now transit in toronto of course is distributed very unequally and i'm sure the bankers wouldn't like it if they had to ride a bus up to you know jane and finch or to keel and steals or whatever yeah i mean riding on those buses is a pain in the ass mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but overall you can say yeah of course like everybody in toronto like all all classes in toronto uh, rely on this transit system now this provides a basis i think for promoting a universal campaign where mm-hmm. you can say well everybody rides the subway so or everybody rides transit more generally so that means that that we'd all benefit you know it's not just poor people who'd benefit from improving transit yeah um yeah so that's why we need to raise taxes <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i think that's true i mean i think actually uh benjamin your question reminded me of uh usually when i look when i've taken the subway on a like more regular basis and i see like everyone's just miserable in the morning you know on rush hour mm-hmm. and they're squished together and i mean they're i guess people are just so into their phones and such so you don't really get a sense of like how they're feeling about being uh, rubbing shoulders with or- us ordinary people but like the times where it made me laugh is on new year's eve when uh the transit system is free uh then i've seen what look like it must be either suburban fa- families or you know just people who are like very sheltered and never ride transit but are riding it because it's new year's eve and like you know they want to give their kids like that uh come see the fireworks downtown and they look so scared <laughs> of like sitting there on the subway just like trying to huddling together and like looking around suspiciously mm. um and which made me think i mean you know in other parts of the world i think um and not not just in other parts of the world but i think even when we were in British Columbia, uh, Omer and I exclusively rode public transit everywhere. And when we told our friends about it who lived there, they were like, what? You rode public transit everywhere? Like it's uh, like it takes forever and it doesn't even like it's so inconvenient. And like and we were just like, yeah, but like we just didn't even think to rent a car. Um, We can't afford to rent a car. (laughs) car, We thought about it. We just can't afford it. Well, the thought doesn't need to arise. (laughs) (laughs) The material conditions, you know, just get rid of certain (laughs) possibilities. But like I was just thinking like in terms of, you know, when sometimes you see um, movies or TV show, American ones, Mm -hmm. they will show public transit as like this grungy sort of like the dirty place. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. exactly and and that like respectable people don't ride it and i think tr- in toronto that's not the case at least you know from what i can tell um which is kind of, kind of interesting and the only time where i got that sense from anyone that they that they thought that way about the system was at new year's eve when i see this like you know what look like sheltered families yeah. being exposed to the city underbelly of toronto <laughs> so benjamin what other uh, transit systems have you experienced um transit systems i was in london for a bit which is a great transit system but it's really unaffordable 
Like, mm. have you guys been to London? No. Okay. Yeah. I avoid the empire. <laughs> the center of them. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that, you know. But yeah, I think it was like, I would usually buy day passes because mm. I was just moving around a lot. And the, the subway system is great. Like, it, it takes you pretty far outside of the city center. Like, the suburbs are really accessible. Mm. But I think it was like at least like 10 euros a day, which is a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, yeah. For like unlimited, you know, rides. So. But wait, do you have euros in London? Is that that? Or pounds? maybe with pounds, pounds. Yeah, which, which is even more, I think, isn't it? The, e, yeah. I think it's even cheap, more valuable. Yeah. 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 Sorry. It was like 11 pounds. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's kind of like when you hear about the best transit systems in the world, you really have to look at like, you know, the fare structure because it might be the best for some people, but. Mm-hmm. If if I live there, I don't know how I would get around. You know how Gandhi got around? On foot? Yeah, he walked. <laughs> he walked. It, even in London? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, when he was there as a law student. I remember reading That's, that in his yeah. autobiography. Yeah. I can I can understand. He didn't that. stay away from empire. No, no. He, he went didn't. right to the heart of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's where he learned how he might dismantle it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but you know one of the things I was thinking was um I was telling Homer this that recently whenever I've ridden the Jane bus especially mm-hmm. and especially in the evenings on a consistent basis, I seem to encounter like people who like visibly are either high or have like a mental illness. Hmm. Um, and I guess on the subway too, I was thinking about this, that like there's very few other places in the city, public spaces in the city during the winter, like on a, in a storm where like a homeless person can be during the day and not get super harassed. Hmm. Um, because like even in the, li- in the public libraries, they're not allowed to fall asleep there um whereas on a subway you'd frequently see people fall asleep um i've fallen asleep like actually there was like one time when i was just exhausted and i was like in between meetings and i was just like looking for a place to nap and so i went to a public library and i was like i'm just gonna sit here on a couch and i'll like just take a quick nap and Mm -hmm. the security guard came and poked me and was like you can't fall asleep here wow and i was like okay so i had to go into the subway just to take a nap and so i napped for like half an hour there. yeah wow <laughs> that's so strange how they don't let you sleep yeah they should have napping rooms in public libraries <laughs> they should but i think they would just become like homeless shelters probably well in a way i think i feel like libraries already are that yeah, yeah. that's yeah. true they're a substitute has funding for homeless shelters and care centers decreases those are the places that people go and, yeah. and it means that for people who, you know, others who want to like access libraries and the services there, they're, they're less likely to sort of be like, okay, let me just take my kids mm-hmm. uh, because they, you know, they maybe don't necessarily feel that it's as safe as it could be. And, yeah. and of course, it puts a huge burden on library staff mm-hmm. who've, who didn't sign up right. uh, to manage people who are so vulnerable and, you know, yeah. But you see this all the time. I mean, you're, you know, like every time I'm in a library, I like I have the sense like if I go use the washroom, there's someone's going to be in there shooting shooting up or yeah. something, right? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. going to be like a joint kind of half wrapped. You see the, joints? I like... Oh, I see joints all the time, yeah. Because I see like people like... Like literally shooting up? Shooting up with like, um, what are those called? Needles? Needles, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's one of the things. I guess about the public transit system, right? And, and I guess you're saying the same thing about uh, 
public libraries that they end up being on the front lines of seeing societal problems without mm. actually being given the resources to like to deal with those problems in a humane or dignified way because what the I think what my sense is that the way that the libraries have um, addressed uh, becoming or especially the libraries downtown have addressed becoming like uh, de facto homeless shelters during the day is by hiring security guards to yeah. like prevent people from falling asleep to like you know prevent people from like I guess bringing a bunch of their stuff in or like shooting up in the in the washrooms so like it's it's handled with securitization. Yeah, you'd think that given that this is the case where homeless people are increasingly relying on libraries to stay warm, especially in the winter, and just generally sort of stay out of the elements. Well, um, first of all, we should solve the homelessness crisis in the city, but also like this is then, uh, you know, there should be services directed um, towards libraries where people are congregating and you know there should be instead of you know policing people who are there actually provide like the kind of staff that can be of use to vulnerable populations yeah. at libraries and the same yeah. can be said of subways i think because like you know especially in the last eight nine years i've seen it become much more common for people to be begging inside subways and the profile of the people who are begging is sort of changing as well um mm. like i've seen a lot more women um and hijab like you know muslim uh, visibly muslim looking women mm-hmm. um it is a warm space it's a dry space it's indoors um it's you know hopefully it's not as many hopefully they don't get harassed as much as they would in other places in the city but like the other day in, on, at Spadano Station, I saw, you know, this woman who seemed to be a bit distraught, maybe was a bit, you know, mentally unstable at the time. She was surrounded by like five uh, fair enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, I don't think that's how you're going to resolve this issue. Yeah. I think like those, the fact that there's so many, you know, homeless people or people who are just looking for a place to nap, you know, sleep. I think it more tells us, it tells us more about like society outside of those spaces, you know, Hmm. like the fact that like, it's just so hard just to exist as a human, you know, in different parts of the city without being sort of policed or told to buy something. You know, you you always have to be involved in some kind of transaction. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I agree with you, like in the short term, like we should be staffing libraries with maybe like social workers and the subway system, you know, Instead of fair inspectors, they should have people who are trained to deal with maybe people with um, mental health issues or like homeless populations. But I think like we shouldn't necessarily transform like libraries and mm-hmm. the subway into like homeless shelters necessarily because yeah. it, it, that's like treating the symptom as opposed to the mm-hmm. deeper disease, which is like we need to provide more space for people than just to live. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Benjamin. It's been a really great discussion. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast. And thanks for being a Patreon supporter of the podcast. We really appreciate it. We'll see you next time.